Hi, it's Erica Kohlberg. And before we dive into today's podcast episode, I have an exciting announcement that can help you save an extra $1,000 without having to penny pinch or change your lifestyle. On Monday, I'm running my free five-day savings challenge where you'll discover simple and creative ways that you can save extra money every month. And whatever you want to do with that extra money is up to you. I'll just show you how to save it. The challenge is totally free to join. All you need to do is go to erica.com slash go. Erica is with a K and you can secure your spot. By the way, these strategies that you're going to discover can help you easily save money, whether you're a budgeting novice or a finance expert, and they're going to get better and better throughout the week. But I have to tell you, I'm so excited about this and don't want you to miss out. In November of last year, we ran a savings challenge and had over 200,000 people sign up. And on average, people saved $1,005 that month through what they learned in the challenge. That means our challengers collectively saved over $200 million. So trust me when I say you don't want to miss out on this one. And the deadline to sign up to be part of this free challenge is Sunday, 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time. So make sure you secure your spot and get free access today. Again, that's erica.com slash go, E-R-I-K-A dot com slash go. See you inside. Women do 70% of the world's unpaid care work. This means they spend much more time doing it than men do. So this not only means that men have more time to engage in paid work, they also have more time to rest. Caroline Criado Perez, ladies and gentlemen. Caroline Criado Perez is an award-winning and best-selling writer, campaigner, and speaker. The failure to include female bodies in design affects women's lives. If we're interested in fixing the gender pay gap, we have to fix the unpaid care work gap. So if a woman is involved in a car crash, she is 17% more likely to die than a man in the same crash, and she's also 47% more likely to be seriously injured. So why is that? I'm Erica Kohlberg, and you're listening to the Erica Taught Me podcast. You know me, video is an integral part of my business. And the free content I post online, like my popular five-day savings challenge, are all video-based and have allowed me to help millions of people get better with their money. So I want to share with you a tool that I really trust when it comes to hosting my videos online. It's called Wistia, a complete video marketing platform that has intuitive video hosting and creation tools, in-depth analytics, and experts on hand for support and inspiration. Simply upload your videos and take full advantage of a ton of features that take the stress out of video. They've got everything you could need and more. Recording, editing, closed captions so that your videos are more accessible and easier to watch on social media, a brandable video player, and email forms for lead gen. To learn more and try it out, go to wistia.com slash Erica, W-I-S-T-I-A, wistia.com slash Erica and follow their socials at Wistia. I'll also put a link in the show notes for you. Expert in the gender data gap. Can you talk about how you got interested in it and what exactly is the gender data gap? Let's start with what the gender data gap is. It is basically the term that I use to describe the fact that the vast majority of information that we have collected globally, historically, and continue to collect today has mainly been collected in men. So that means things like economic data to medical data to urban planning data. They've all been mainly collected in men. And that means that most things in the world from the car you drive to the medical treatment you receive have been designed to work for men. And that means that many things or even most things in the world just don't work as well for women. How I got into the gender data gap is quite a long story. So I went to university a bit later than most people. So obviously most people go around the age of 18 or 19. I didn't go till I was 25. I got to university and that was the first time I'd actually had to read any feminist theory. I'd never read any before. I'd just read, you know, how feminists are depicted in the news media, which was not very positively at the time. It was just, I I basically thought it was man-hating. Anyway, I went to university and this was where I first had to encounter actual feminist theory. And it was really, I think, the way I was introduced to it 
that made it almost inevitable that I would end up writing about the gender data gap. So the way I was introduced to it was through um, reading about it for university essays. And there was this specific book that it is not uh, an exaggeration to say changed my life. And it was called Feminism and Linguistic Theory, (laughs) which is a very, not a likely contender for changing your life. But it was about how I guess the gendering of language and how language shapes our perceptions of the world. And specifically, the section that really shifted my thinking was this, just a few pages in the book, talking about the way that the male is used generically in language. So in English, that would be using he as a gender neutral pronoun or talking about man to mean humankind. And I had obviously heard before, because it's it's one of the things that are used to sort of, you know, quote unquote, show how stupid feminists are, that they actually complain about using he gender neutrally. Everyone knows that it actually means he and she. Um, it's just, just for clarity, you know, it's just to, to make the writing sound nice. You don't want to say he and she, that's clumsy. And so I sort of, that's the line that I had bought, that this was really, really stupid. And it was just complaining about something surface level. This book, however, pointed to or talked about research that showed that when people hear or read the word he, even if it is intended gender neutrally, they picture a man. I'd never heard that before. I'd never had it pointed out to me before. But as soon as I read that, I suddenly realized, oh my God, yeah, I am picturing a man when I hear that word. And not only was that a shock that I was picturing a man, the real shock was, I'm 25. How have I never noticed this before, that I am always picturing a man? And then I realized it wasn't just when I heard the word he, it was when I heard pretty much any gender neutral word, you know, lawyer, doctor, professor, writer, I was picturing men. Um, And I had just never noticed it before. It was just so ingrained, so standard. It just went unquestioned. And just the fact that I had been forced to realize I didn't know what was going on in my own head. And my head, as a woman, was peopled with men, was just a total game changer for me. And because that was how I came into feminism, you know, I really think that it primed me to start noticing it in other areas, other areas where when we think we're talking gender neutrally, we're actually talking about men. And so I started almost subconsciously collecting these examples in my head. So the next thing I did after I finished my first degree, which was unsurprisingly in English literature, given I was reading about feminism and linguistics, I went and I studied behavioral economics and feminist economics. And that was where I learned about the classic, the neoclassical economic approach, which discounts a huge swathe of economic activity related to women, which is something I expect we will get into later, but very, very briefly about how women's unpaid care work isn't included in GDP. So it skews our whole economic analysis of the world by essentially having a massive data gap at its heart. And so that was a real shock to me, you know, as someone who comes from the arts and starts studying, you know, something closer to a science to realize that even though this is presented as a science, it's actually still affected by uh, subjectivity, you know, what we decide is worth counting. Um, So that was a very shocking wake up call to me again. And I just started gradually picking up more and more examples. So after studying for my second degree, I did some work with a charity for female refugees. And there I discovered, you know, what to me again was very, very shocking. You'd think that maybe at this point I would stop being so shocked, but I was still very shocked, you know, to discover that the law as well um, is often written And to be clear, this is often completely unwitting. You know, it's not deliberately sexist. That's almost what makes it more difficult to address because first you have to make people realize that it's having this disparate impact on women because we write it gender neutrally, we think of it gender neutrally. It's just that the impact isn't gender neutral. So what I'm talking about here is specifically 
the UN um, Convention on Refugees, which was drawn up after the Second World War, intended that no one should ever be rendered stateless ever again. But the way it's written is with a male refugee in mind, which means that it makes it much harder for a woman to claim asylum. So very, very briefly, what the types of provisions are that you can be, you know, you can't just rock up into a country and claim asylum. You have to prove that you are being persecuted for specific reasons, which include things like political affiliation um, or sexuality, which are, of course, reasons that women can be persecuted. But the number one reason that women are persecuted is because they're a woman. And there is no box for that. And then, you know, there are things like even before you can claim asylum, you have to leave the country that you're fleeing from. You have to claim asylum in a different country. That's much harder for women to be able to do because in a lot of countries that women are going to be fleeing from, they um, can't travel on their own. Women are less likely to be working in the formal economy, which makes it harder for them to get a travel visa. So there are all these blocks that aren't accounted for in the legislation. There is no way that that was deliberate. You know, this is not a deliberately anti-female piece of legislation. It is simply a piece of legislation that has not accounted for the female experience because it considers the male experience to be the human experience. So there I was sort of gradually building up this uh, thesis in my head of we have to stop speaking about men as if they're gender neutral. And then when I was writing my first book, I came across this research that showed that we were doing this in medicine as well, that we were treating the male body as if it was gender neutral. In medicine, which is the study of bodies, <laughs> right? And as a result, women are being underdiagnosed, they are getting worse treatment, and in some areas they are more likely to die because they are being misdiagnosed and they are receiving treatment that has been designed for a male body. That was like the straw that broke the camel's back. Right? I just could not believe that in the actual study of human bodies, we are studying the male body as if it represents the human body. I couldn't understand why this wasn't front page news. Like most people did not know this. Most people still don't know this. So I felt I have to make them know this. I have to write something that is going to get people as pissed off as I am about the stupidity of our bias where we think of men as if they're gender neutral. And, you know, I don't exclude myself from that. Obviously, I have grown up in the same world as everyone else. You know, back in university, that was when I realized I was thinking of men as if they're gender neutral. It's not about people being sexist. It's just about the way we are brought up, the culture in which we are brought up, that represents men to us everywhere as if they're gender neutral right from you know look think about the medical posters that you see up in the doctor's office they're all of a male body you know but the male body is not the average body it is the male body <laughs> you know the 50 percent of the bodies are female but we are presented as if we're niche as if we're atypical um, and that leads to all sorts of problems which we're going to get into so that was why <laughs> i decided to write about the gender data gap. I'm curious with the medical part that you were talking about, what exactly did you find that they were only using males to study? So there were two papers that I read. One of them was about cardiovascular research and the fact that historically, and this is still an issue today, the vast majority of research has been done in men. The female cardiovascular system is not exactly the same as the male cardiovascular system, which means that... There are certain diagnostic thresholds for, for determining whether someone has heart disease or not, or the ways in which heart disease may present, you know, physical manifestations, symptoms, that kind of thing has been determined based on the male body, and it may present differently in women. And because most of the research has been done in men, women are more likely to be misdiagnosed if they have a heart attack. They're more likely to die following a heart attack. The basic reality is that most of the research has been done in men. Therefore, women are more likely to be misdiagnosed and get worse treatment and therefore are more likely to die. So that was, you know, just crazy to me. <laughs> Why? And so, so realizing that there was this very tangible life and death 
impact on women from this bias that people have was enraging. Um, and the other study that I read was about animal studies because it's not just in humans that we're only studying men. We're also studying male animals. And the reason is that we have historically thought basically, I mean, this is the reason we also, one of the reasons we also study male humans is that researchers will say, well, females are just too hormonal. We can't study females. And, you know, it is true that you should factor the menstrual cycle into research because the menstrual cycle exists in reality. <laughs> and yeah, it does actually have an impact, but that's not a reason to exclude it. That's a reason to include it. But because we have this bias that the male body is like the standard body, and then the female body is basically the male body with like some weird stuff added on, there is this assumption, despite all the evidence showing that this does not work, there is still this latent assumption that we can just use males because it's simpler and then we can sort of hope that it works for women. So we don't study females. I mean, this is, you know, getting a bit better now, I should state. We still massively under-research female humans, but, but this also happens with animals with the same argument that, you know, females are too menstrual and, you know, the, the, the female mice will just be like all over the place. You can't possibly consider the female mice. This actually really does matter because, again, um, there are these differences that will manifest. So there's a really interesting study I wrote about in Invisible Women that was done on mice and it was about heart attacks and their relation to circadian rhythms. And then this study was done and they found the opposite. So it was, it, let's say it was like that you're most likely to have a heart attack, you know, in the morning. And then this study found you're more likely to have a heart attack in the evening. And they were just like, what is going on here? And they couldn't figure it out. And then they suddenly realized everyone else had used male mice and this study had used female mice, you know, and that's like, it's a really important thing to know, but we're still not doing it. We still haven't learned these lessons. And not only are we mainly studying male humans and male animals were also very, very bad. This is one of the most frustrating things is that even when researchers go to the effort of including male mice and female mice, male humans and female humans, we don't sex disaggregate the data, which means that we don't see the differences when there are. And this is bad for men as well, right? Like if you've got a study that's just men, then great. Those studies, you know, that research is going to be helpful for men. If you have a study that has men and women, and there are differences, that's just gonna create this muddy middle ground that doesn't work for anyone. But we still do not sex disaggregate and do not sex analyze our data. I mean, that is, that's kind of where we are now. Like we've got a bit better at including a more diverse population, at least in human studies, but we still are very far off doing the necessary sex analysis and sex disaggregation, which means that we haven't really made things better for anyone. All we've really done in some cases, I'm afraid men, is potentially made some things worse for men. That's a very, very big part of what still needs to happen. But when it comes to animals, we still just got to include the female animals because we haven't even got there. And the where the whole like, oh, ladies are too hormonal argument falls apart is when you look at cells because cells do not have a menstrual cycle. And yet the vast majority of cell stage research, which is the beginning of research, is done in male cells. I, I have no idea why. <laughs> There's no logic to that at all. But again, this really does matter because cells respond according to sex, right? So there was this, again, very interesting study that I reported on in Invisible Women that exposed male and female cells to estrogen and then exposed them to a virus. It was the flu virus. And what they found was that the female cells responded to the estrogen and were able to fight off the virus. The estrogen had no effect on the male cells and they were not able to fight off the virus. So you look at a study like that and you think how many treatments that would have worked for women have we missed out on because they didn't work for male cells at that stage, and so it didn't progress. Because, you know, that's how research works. You test it on the cells. If there's something interesting in the cells, 
then you progress to animal studies. And one of the arguments that researchers have made to me in the past when I challenge them is, well, look, we're just starting off in males, you know, like the standard sex, starting off the standard sex. And then if we find anything interesting, you know, we'll add females later. Well, that doesn't work because you may not find anything interesting, but if you'd included females at that stage, you might have found that it was interesting in them. So that's just a very, very frustrating part of it. I'm always on the go, jumping from meeting to meeting and juggling multiple projects. And it's been hard to find a workout routine that I can actually stick to. I've tried gym memberships, classes, but nothing was flexible enough to fit into my lifestyle until I came across Copilot. True to its name, Copilot puts me in the driver's seat when it comes to fitness, but it's always by my side with flexible, expertly crafted workouts, courtesy of my awesome coach. With Copilot, you download the app and you get assigned an expert coach. Mine is amazing. We got on a kickoff call where we talked about everything that I wanted to achieve. The workouts are customized for you and you can work out at any time at the gym or home, wherever you are. Doing a gentle workout routine at night has helped me relax so much, and it's now a vital part of my fitness routine. My coach never feels far away and makes adjustments to my plan whenever I need, so there's no need for me to miss sessions. Copilot is fitness made easy. If you want to kickstart your health, then visit erica.com copilot to get a 14-day free trial with your own personal trainer. Again, that's erica.com slash copilot. Erica is with a K, copilot is C-O-P-I-L-O-T to kickstart your health plan with a free trial. I'll leave the link in the description so that you can sign up now. That's so crazy. I mean, when you go to a CVS or a Walgreens, I know like if you're looking at supplements or vitamins, mm. you will see male vitamins or women, women vitamins, but... For medication, I've never seen that. Yeah. You don't see, like, this is for men to take, this is for women to take. Yeah. But you're saying, essentially, if the research is done correctly and women and men are considered in separate studies, separate data is collected on them, there should be two medications for some of these things. I mean, we don't really know because the research hasn't been done. But certainly there is research. So, for example, um, emerging research into things like Chemotherapy shows that there should be potentially different doses for women. You know, absolutely, yeah. There are certain times where medication will work in men and not work as well for women. So one of the things that I dug up in my research when I was looking at adverse drug reactions was that, for a start, women are more likely to have an adverse drug reaction not really a surprise given we don't test it on them. And basically when it's released to the public, here we go, there's your clinical <laughs> trial women out in the wild. And so, you know, drugs are more likely to be withdrawn from the market because, you know, after they've been approved, suddenly you discover, oh, this is having an adverse drug reaction in women. So now we've got to remove it from the market. It would be uh, nice for them to figure that out before they release it. <laughs> you would think. But one of the things that I thought was so interesting was that I think it was the second most common drug, adverse drug reaction, it was certainly a very common one. It might even have been the most common adverse drug reaction. Certainly it was very, very high up there, was that the drug just didn't work. That was like one of the most common adverse drug reactions for women was that the, the drug didn't work. It's very difficult not to look at that finding and connect it to the finding that we have not been testing drugs on women. The major thing is often simply that women get misdiagnosed because we don't know how to look for certain diseases in women or diseases that are female dominated. We've done much less research in because we don't research women. So, you know, things like endometriosis are just, we know much less about, even though it's actually pretty common, right? It's one in 10 women have endometriosis and it takes up to 10 years to be diagnosed because we aren't training doctors you know, to understand it. Or like the menopause, right? This is a very common <laughs> condition and we know very little about it. And doctors are very, very bad at being able to diagnose when a woman is going into menopause. And in fact, we don't have a test to show it, right? Like you can um, test someone's hormones, but because your hormones change day to day, hour to hour to hour, it's not 
actually an effective test to, to say whether someone actually is going into menopause. I don't find it credible that if we did the research, we would not be able to find a way to test that someone is going into menopause, right? But we just haven't done the research. So we don't have it. It's, based, it's just based on, are you, do you feel like you're going into menopause? I guess you might be. That's terrible. <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah, which is why you end up with so many women who it transpires, actually they were menopausal, being just prescribed antidepressants, or, you know, being told that basically they're, they're crazy. Antidepressants are not a treatment for the menopause, by the way. Hormone replacement therapy is a treatment for the menopause. Not obviously that everyone can take it, but, you know, if you are going to take some kind of treatment, the thing that's going to help you with your uh, hot flashes, for example, which are probably what are leading to you not sleeping well and therefore feeling depressed, is hormone replacement therapy. This is mind-blowing. I remember something you said earlier is that most people are still unaware that this gender data gap exists. And I remember a few years back, my friend Sophia had this book. It was called Invisible Woman. Of course, you wrote it. <laughs> and she was explaining to me how good it was. And she was saying, you know, did you know there was such a thing as a gender data gap? And giving me examples. And I thought... I studied sociology in college. I think a lot about the world and how gender plays a role in it. And I have never, I had never thought of such a thing. So it's something that unless people are exposed to, we're kind of just assuming that it doesn't exist. But that makes sense, right? Why, why wouldn't you assume that? A, we speak as if everything is gender neutral. So that leads you very naturally to the assumption that it is. And also... I think we just expect better from scientists. I know I did. You know, I was incredibly shocked to find this level of subjective thinking in what presents itself as an objective area. You know, I really had scientists up there on a pedestal. They're better than us, you know? Yeah. They think objectively. Us and the humanities, we're just scrabbling around <laughs> with all our biases, you know? And it, it's very shocking to discover that that is not the case and they're as riddled with bias as the rest of us. When you were researching Invisible Woman, what was the most shocking discovery that you found? The one that still hits you to this day? I mean, it's a very difficult question <laughs> because they're all incredibly shocking and all the medical stuff is just horrific. But I think probably the example that is sort of most obvious direct one-to-one -one of you take the default gender-neutral male and you end up with dead women, the stuff about car crashes. So if a woman is involved in a car crash, she is 17% more likely to die than a man in the same crash, and she's also 47% more likely to be seriously injured. So why is that? Well, a very credible explanation is that we don't test car safety on female bodies. So the most commonly used car crash test dummy, and for a long time it was the only car crash test dummy that was used, was based on the body of the average American male. Now, obviously, this body does not represent a lot of people, <laughs> but it definitely doesn't represent the 50% of the population that has a female body. And what I find very interesting about this is it's such a clear example of how we think of the average man as the average human. Right? The idea that you can take the average man and say, this is the average human, we're putting them in the car um, to test how safe the car is for all people is obviously ridiculous, but it, it kind of shows how deep the bias goes, right? That no one sort of thinks that's ridiculous. That's the dummy that's most commonly used. Now, car manufacturers will say, hang on a minute, we do test cars on the female dummy. Let me tell you about the female dummy. The female dummy is not a female dummy. <laughs> the female dummy is a very small male dummy, right? So it represents a woman in the most superficial way, i.e., height and weight. And it's actually the fifth percentile. So it's a very, very small um, woman. It does not represent things like muscle mass distribution, does not represent things like breast tissue, does not represent things like the differences between the male and the female pelvis. And those are incredibly important. So just to focus on the pelvis, for example, the seatbelt, the thing that protects you in the event of a car crash, has been designed to catch on your hip bones because bones can withstand the force of the crash much better than your soft tissue can. The problem is they've been designed on the male pelvis and the 
female car crash test dummy also has a male pelvis, just a very small male pelvis. What's the problem with that? Well, it's a different shape. And so on the female pelvis, the seatbelt is more likely to ride up. It won't catch as well on the bones. And that means it can cause, it, when you're in the crash, instead of it catching on your bones, it may be catching on your soft tissue, or if you're pregnant, on your baby. I spoke to a woman called uh, Maria because this is exactly what happened to her. She was in a car crash. The seatbelt slid up over her pelvic bones, crushed her small intestine to her spine, caused catastrophic bleeding and um, blood and air to be released into her abdomen. And she could have died very luckily because she was in so much pain. They eventually, you know, actually properly examined her and realized this was happening. And um, she now is alive and well and campaigning very hard for female car crash test dummies to be used in car testing. Car crashes are the number one cause of fetal death from trauma. The thing that is so galling about this from my perspective, is that the seatbelt, the safety mechanism in the car, is the one that is causing this damage um, because it has been designed around the male body. And there is, beyond, of course, the huge impact on the women and the people who love these women who are involved in these car crashes, there is also a huge economic impact to all these preventable deaths and injuries that happen every single year. And yet, we're still not including a dummy that represents the female body in car crashes. In the US, the quote-unquote female dummy is only tested in the passenger seat, not even the driver's seat. Oh my goodness. Right. And oh, by the way, the majority of deaths and injuries that have occurred in the US on women have been with them in the driver's seat. Because women drive. <laughs> it's incredibly frustrating, but you still have... Bodies like the NHTSA in America um, and car manufacturers, you know, resisting this change. They don't want to because they feel it will cost money. Of course, it will cost them more money. But how much money will it save society in the shape of not having all these injured and dead women? And there's a lot of injuries. It's like hundreds of thousands of preventable injuries every single year in, just in the U.S., you know, so when you take that globally, it's a huge, huge number of injuries and therefore a huge amount of money if you're going to talk about this from an economic perspective that could be saved. Now, to be clear, I think we should just do it because it's the right thing. But I'm aware, you know, I have to make a business case as well. The business case is also clear if you are going to consider the economic impact from a country perspective. What's the one story from the book that people come up to you and say, Caroline, I could not believe this. Thank you so much for bringing this to the world. I mean, people pick up lots of different things. I mean, the car crashes is one, heart disease is one. I've definitely had women come up to me and thank me because they felt so seen by the section on unpaid care work and also how that impacts on travel. Actually, one thing that I found really funny that I hadn't expected at all, one thing that women really have picked up on is toilet cues. Let me tell you about toilets very briefly. So basically, in a lot of plumbing codes, the way public toilets are, are, are sort of set out in, in the regulations is that, or the standards, is that you should have equal floor space for the male toilets and for the female toilets. And that sounds... Fair, but it isn't. And the reason it isn't is for a couple of things. So first of all, male toilets don't just have cubicles, they also have urinals. And you can fit more urinals into a square footage than you can fit cubicles. So right on the face of it, equal floor space means men get more provision. But it gets worse than that because there's more demand on the female toilet. Um, and that is partly because women are more likely to be accompanying small children or accompanying older people. They also take longer. And this isn't because we're faffing about in front of the mirror. This is in the cubicle. Um, and we take longer because a certain percentage of anyone using the female toilets at any one time is going to be on their period. And, you know, that adds to the time that's taken. There's also like things like, you know, we have to sit down. So that just takes more time. And all of those things like sort of in the micro seem quite small, but you add them up across hundreds of people and it becomes quite a big time difference. So you've got more demand, you've got the fact that it takes more time and you have fewer facilities. Other reason there's more demand on the female toilet is that 
when you're pregnant, you need to go to the toilet much more frequently. So, you know, that also adds to demand on the female toilet. Women are, I think, eight times more likely to suffer from uh, urinary tract infections. Now, personally, when I have a UTI, I do not leave the house, but some people sadly have to leave the house when they have a UTI. You have to be, like, you're basically chained to the toilet at that point. So there's just all this demand on the female toilet that just does not exist for the male toilet. And so that is why you always have a key for the ladies and you never have a key for the gents. It's very, very simple. It's because we have not designed things based on how the toilets are actually being used by women versus men. And very soon after Invisible Women came out, I started receiving <laughs> photos from women of them standing in the queue for the ladies <laughs> alongside a, a free door for the men where men were just like blithely wandering in and out. I feel like that that really struck a chord. And um, I think the reason for it is we all hate standing in the queue for the ladies. But also, I don't know about you, but certainly my experience has been that men think this is something that's quite funny and that it's our fault, right? So we're so used to being like the figure of fun in this. Oh, you women, what are you doing there? You take so long. Why is it always a massive cue? And so for women to discover that this thing that they've kind of been blamed for and laughed at all their lives is actually the result of structural inequality, right? Structural inequality in the design of public spaces, I think it's made them really mad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so they started sending me photos. I still get them. I still get photos. I could have sent you one on Sunday. I went to see Jersey Boys and we had this intermission and it was so frustrating because the men's line, there was no line. And then my line, I had to wait like maybe 15 minutes in it. And I almost missed the show. I was very upset. Yeah. <laughs> and for anyone who runs a theatrical establishment, <laughs> there, I think, is a very good business case for having more toilets for women. Because if you hadn't been standing in that queue, what would you have been doing? You'd probably been buying, buying yourself food, a drink. But I didn't yeah. have time because by the time I finished, it was right. time for the show to yeah. start. Yeah. So it, it doesn't make economic sense. It doesn't make social sense. It makes no sense. <laughs> It's frustrating. Like women spend so much of their time when they're out at events, like scoping out when's the best time for me to go to the toilet. You know, when you know the interval's coming up, you're like primed, ready. I yeah. <laughs> like beat the queue. And men don't have to do that. They just swan around being like, oh, should I go to the toilet later? I'll get a drink first, you know. That's crazy. It changes our experience of public spaces. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I've interviewed health experts, read the right books, and made promises to myself that I'll do better. But somehow, I end up standing in my own way. Knowing what I should do is different from actually doing it. It seems like I always find an excuse not to complete the tasks that I know I need to get done. It's exhausting. Therapy is such a valuable tool. Learning to unpick those bad habits and forming new, positive skills such as boundary setting, even for yourself. BetterHelp is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. I've been using it for several months myself, and it's the only therapy I've been able to stick with because it's all online and fits in my schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Make your brain your friend with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com etm today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash E-T-M. The traditional guidance with fertility has been just wait and see. But I actually found out about two years ago that starting a family wouldn't be an easy journey for me. And since then, I've been an advocate for being proactive about your fertility health. That's why I'm so excited about today's sponsor, Modern Fertility. Modern Fertility is an easy and affordable way to test your fertility hormones at home with a simple finger prick. You'll get insight into your hormone levels and any red flags, your ovarian reserve, aka the average number of eggs you have compared to other women your age, what each result means, and you can download the results to review with your doctor. Just mail in your sample with the prepaid label and you'll get your personalized results within six business days. Hormone testing at a fertility clinic can cost over $600, but Modern Fertility tests the same general set of hormones for only $179.
Right now, Modern Fertility is offering our listeners $20 off the test when you go to modernfertility.com slash Erica. That means your test will cost $159, which is a fraction of what it would cost at a fertility clinic. Get $20 off your fertility test when you go to modernfertility.com slash Erica. So is it largely because more men are behind the scenes in designing these stadiums and the toilet situation there? Or what were you able to find? I mean, I think that's a very, very likely explanation because the majority of the people making these decisions and designing these things are men. And, you know, they don't know what goes on in the ladies' toilet. (laughs) And they do have different experiences. You know, they don't know how we go to the toilet. They aren't aware that we go in and we have to go in and get the cubicle and find somewhere to hang our bag, find somewhere to hang our coat, turn around, sit down, pull down our trousers. You know, there might be pee on the seat. You've got to wipe that off. There's kids running around. You know, like it's it's a, it's a secret world that they don't know about. <laughs> so how can they possibly design well for it? You know, and, and I think that it is a very human thing to believe that the way you experience the world is just the way the world is. So I I don't think we can really blame men for this. The problem is the lack of diversity, you know, and that's one of the big things I do talk about in the book as a way to address the gender data gap is that men cannot possibly design this problem away because they don't know what they don't know. There's just this anecdote that I thought was really interesting in um, Sheryl Sandberg's book where she talks about getting pregnancy parking put in at Google Um, And basically she got it put in because she was pregnant, really struggling to walk across this vast car park. And she was in a senior enough position to be able to go in and say to the head of Google, like, put in pregnancy parking. And, you know, that doesn't just benefit her, it benefits anyone at Google later on who was pregnant. And the thing that I found very interesting about the way she writes about this anecdote was, you know, she felt really, really bad that she hadn't thought about it before she got pregnant. I don't think she should feel bad about that. That's literally why diverse representation matters, because... Why would you know that when you walk across a car park and you're pregnant, it's really difficult? Um, Unless you've been pregnant or someone has told you. And so I don't think it's surprising. It shouldn't surprise us that men don't know what's going on in the female toilet. What we should be doing is trying to um, diversify um, these professions so that these changes get made on the basis that you have a representative body of people designing facilities that all people are going to use. Another example I think people really um, found very interesting from the book was about um, the snow clearing. And I do think this is relevant to men designing things. So basically, you might think of snow clearing as um, a gender neutral act. You would, of course, be wrong because nothing is gender neutral. (laughs) I think we've established that. And the reason that snow clearing is not a gender neutral act is because travel is not a gender neutral act. So men and women on average tend to travel differently. Uh, Men are more likely to drive. Uh, Women are more likely to take public transport and walk because you have to walk to use public transport. And men also, on average, have a much more simple travel pattern, which is the commute, commute in and out of work directly. Women, because they combine their paid work with their unpaid caring responsibilities, have a more complicated style of travel, which is called trip chaining which means they don't just go in and out of a business district. They take more circuitous routes, lots of interconnected trips. This is called trip chaining. So they take the kids to school before going into work. Maybe they pick up the groceries on the way home. They drop in on an elderly relative. They're doing this whole circuitous, lots of little interconnected trips type of travel. But the transport system is set up for the commuting type of travel. Now, why is that? Is it because... The people who design the transport system hate women and want to inconvenience us. No, it's because they think that's how everyone travels, because that's how they travel, you know, and that's how it's historically been designed. And there's actually a very interesting, um, I will come back to the snow clearing. There's a very interesting analysis that was done by this female transport planner in Madrid, where she took the the standard way that travel patterns are analyzed. And they analyze this so they can determine 
how public transport should be structured, right? It's really, really important to know how people are traveling. So, you know, where do we need to put our public transport? And like, when does it need to go? When are peak times? All that kind of stuff. And the traditional way to analyze travel patterns is to group together travel for employment, for paid employment. And then you have separate categories for things like shopping, escorting, education. And if you analyze travel like that, travel for paid employment is the clear winner. It is by far the the most common reason that people are traveling. So if you look at travel like that, it makes sense to design the transport system around the commute. But what this transport planner did was she decided to aggregate the trips that were made for unpaid care work. Because the way that it is done in traditional transport planning is trips for unpaid care work are divided up in all these smaller categories like shopping, like escorting, and they are mixed up with leisure travel. Mm. So like shopping for leisure versus shopping for the groceries, for example, or, you know, like taking the kids to school, like it's mixed up with the leisure travel. When she took out the unpaid care work from the leisure and put it all together the way we have traditionally put uh, paid employment travel, there was nearly as much travel for unpaid care work as there was for paid employment. It was 29% versus 30%, like really similar. And it was the number one reason that women were traveling. Now, if you look at the travel data like that, suddenly it's not so clear that we should be designing our public transport around paid employment because unpaid care is just as important a reason that people are traveling. But because, you know, I guess the people who originally decided how are we going to aggregate the travel, how are we going to analyze the travel, were people who were commuting in and out of work, likely men. They just, that's the way they thought it made sense. So, you know, and I think that's another really good example of this isn't bad people. This is biased systems. And they are biased systems that we have inherited and that we should now change. You know, now that we know that they are not representing the world as it is, they're representing the world as one sector of society experiences the world, which means that the world works really well for that small section of society, but doesn't work well for everyone else. So snow clearing is based on the traditional way that we've thought about travel, i.e. paid employment. So this meant that in most, well, this means that in most districts in the world, we clear the major road arteries first, And then if you're lucky, we'll clear the local roads and the sidewalks. Now that I've told you about transport, I'm sure you realize the problem with that, right? Women are more likely to be using the local roads and the sidewalks Mm -hmm. as they're walking the kids to the bus and walking them to the school. And men are more likely to be using the major through roads. Basically, this town in Sweden called Karlskoga was doing like a gender audit of all their local government policies, which is just... For anyone outside of a Nordic country, it's sort of like utopian idea. (laughs) But anyway, so they were doing this. And the story goes, I don't know if this is actually true, but it's a great story, that someone like as a joke was like, oh, we should look at the snow clearing, you know, like these gender people are going to make snow clearing sexist. And the gender people were like, yeah, all right, let's look at the snow clearing. (laughs) And yeah, they realized there was this issue with them prioritizing typical male travel over typical female travel. So they were like, well, let's just run a pilot and see what happens if we clear the sidewalks and the local roads first and then the major road arteries. And and the reason they thought this was it wouldn't cost them any more money. And also they were thinking, well, it's probably easier to drive a car through three inches of snow than it is to walk or push a buggy. And what they discovered when they did this was, yeah, it is easier to drive a car and it is harder to push a buggy. They actually ended up saving money just by the simple switch of their healthcare bill because pedestrians made up the majority of those who were, and not a small majority, quite a large majority of those who were injured in icy or uh, wintry conditions. They had the most severe injuries. Uh, women unsurprisingly dominated those who admitted to hospital. And the cost of all this, of these injuries in a single winter season was three times the cost of the winter road maintenance. So it was like this big, big potential cost saving with this very, very simple change based on recognizing you have a gender data gap, filling the gender data gap, and changing your policy to account for that. And yet, 
despite the fact that this has now been shown in several Swedish and adopted in several Swedish cities, um, they now do it in Stockholm, for example, you still have countries all around the world that still are just doing this old prioritize the major roads, then think about the sidewalks and the local roads. It's very frustrating. I know you've been alluding to this concept of unpaid labor, and there's this brilliant quote in your book that really stuck out to me. There's no such thing as a woman who doesn't work. There is only a woman who isn't paid for her work. Can you elaborate on this? Yeah, I feel like I should get that on a t-shirt or something. You should. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, this is about the unpaid care work that women do that isn't accounted for in the way we um, analyze the economy. And it should be. Because women's unpaid care work actually is a huge contributor to GDP. I mean, we're talking about trillions to global GDP. Estimates suggest that unpaid care work in high-income countries accounts for about 50% of GDP. In low-income countries, it's 80%. So these are huge, huge figures. And the problem that we have is that because we only account for the paid economy, we are ignoring how the paid economy is propped up by the unpaid economy. If the women are not taking the kids to school, who's doing that? Who is raising the future workers? Who is ensuring that workers are fed and clothed and cleaned? Who is doing the childcare? Who is doing the elder care? These are all absolutely fundamental to the functioning of a society. And if you had to pay someone to do these jobs, it would cost a lot of money. So that's one part of it. And then you, someone might say in return to that, well, but it's okay, we don't have to pay them. Women will do it. I mean, that is the assumption we make. We don't have to pay for this stuff because women will do it. But there is a huge opportunity cost to women because they do all this unpaid care work. It is at the heart of things like the gender pay gap. So the gender pay gap is partly about women getting paid less for doing the same job. But it is also very, very strongly connected to the fact that so much of women's time is taken up with this unpaid care work. It means that they do not have as much time as men to invest in paid employment. And men are rewarded for being able to invest more in paid employment. And not just because if you work more hours, you'll get paid more. So women are more likely to work part-time because of this. But also, you get paid more for those more hours. So let me say this in better English. Um, There's a really interesting um, analysis done, I think it was by Nate Silver, that looked at hourly pay for people who work 50 hours or more. And it has risen, I think it was twice as fast since 1984 um, as anyone who works less than 50 hours, um, which is the more typical work week. 70% of people who work 50 hours or more are men. Why is that? Is it because men just like work more? Or is it because women literally don't have the time to work more because they have all these unpaid care work responsibilities? So if we're interested in fixing the gender pay gap, we have to fix the unpaid care work gap. Women do 70% of the world's unpaid care work. This means they spend much more time doing it than men do. So this not only means that men have more time to engage in paid work, they also have more time to rest. So men have more leisure time than women. So in the UK and the US, uh, men have five hours per week more leisure time than women. Interestingly as well, it's arguable how much of that leisure time for women is truly leisure time, because kind of like with the transport and the travel, we're mixing up care work and leisure time. So there was an Australian study which showed that women's leisure time was much more fragmented and, quote, combined with other tasks. I mean, if it's combined with other tasks, it's not leisure time. Like, if I'm folding the laundry, that's not me, like, having a great time, having some real good me time there in the laundry room. You know, so women's leisure time is interrupted by the care work. And, you know, again, that also means that women are less likely to be able to work these very, very long hours. And, And we have data showing this, that women's health, both mental and physical, is much more severely impacted by extreme long working hours than, than men's is. Now, you could look at that and say, well, men are just a very strong, you know, they're great and they just can work, they're working machines. Actually, women have a longer working day overall in 
pretty much every country, I mean, every country for which we have data that I looked at, women were working, had a longer working day when you combine their paid and unpaid work. So it is not that men are just like these working machines. It's that when they are doing these long working days, that's all they're doing. Whereas when women are doing it, they then come home and they start what's called the second shift. And they're cleaning and they're looking after the kids and they're doing all this other stuff. Now, I am not suggesting that men don't do anything because when you talk about this, people get very upset and they think you're saying that men don't look after their kids and they never clean. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the statistics very clearly show that women are doing the majority. Um, and this has an impact on their physical health, it has an impact on their mental health, and it has an impact on their ability to engage in paid labour. So therefore, it has an impact on society in the form of the gender pay gap. And the gender pay gap matters not just as a matter of fairness for women, but it also matters to the economy of a country. Because when women are not being paid at the level, so, you know, for example, if you take on part-time work, you're generally not going to be able to you know, get up very high in a company. So you have these women who are very, very highly educated. We've invested in them as a society. They're not working at the level at which they could because they've got these unpaid care work responsibilities. The impact of that is that you get less tax, right? Because women are getting paid less, so they pay less tax. So there are all these knock-on effects to what we think of as money-saving by just getting women to do everything for free. These unseen costs that as a society we're paying that mainly women are paying but we are also paying as a society there are all these opportunity costs by not allowing women to engage in innovation at the same level as men in business at the same level as men you know all that stuff I was talking about as well about you know how do we get more women involved in designing toilets how do we get more met women involved in transport planning all these areas where we need women's insights because we're missing out on the insights of 50% of humanity that's a huge opportunity cost for society as a whole so unpaid care work really underpins a huge amount of the topics that I address in the book you know, because it really underpins a lot of the areas where we have these data gaps. We have them not just because women are missing in the data, we have them because women are missing in the decision-making about what data we're going to collect, how we're going to analyze that data. Because you come to make those decisions with your own priors. And again, I emphasize this is not about saying that men hate women and are deliberately excluding us from the data. It's that they are making the very natural human mistake of thinking that what you think is important, how you experience the world, is a universal experience. And it was essentially showing why you need to negotiate for a raise because men tend to earn more than women. So it's really important to try to close that gap and ask for a raise and be confident enough to negotiate for a raise. And when I post that video, oh my gosh, the comments and the DMs that I got... People were like, you know, the gender wage gap isn't true. It's been disproven. What can you tell me about this? It is real. <laughs> it does exist. <laughs> the way that people try to get around it is by acting, you know, this is where the unpaid care work comes in, right? They act like because some of it, maybe even quite a lot of it, is attributable to women's unpaid care work, meaning they cannot engage in, you know, as I said, the extreme long hours where people get paid exponentially more, that therefore that somehow is not a societal issue. That's, they like to reduce it to the level of the individual woman making individual decisions about how she chooses to do her care work, when that's simply not the case. So the reality is that, for example, childcare is extremely unaffordable. And because men generally get paid more, if you have a heterosexual partnership, the man generally will be the one who's earning more. In that couple, it makes economic sense for the woman's career to take a back seat. Um, and once your career starts to take a back seat, that just continues. The husband continues to start earning more. She continues to earn less. So if you look at it just on an individual basis, you know, I think that's where that argument comes in, is these people are just making the right decision for their family and she's choosing to go part-time. But these choices are not made in a vacuum. These choices are made in the context of someone has to look after the kids. Someone has to look after the elderly parents. And 
if as a society we valued that work and folded it into our economic analysis and therefore provided solutions at a societal level, I don't think you would have that you would always be having the woman taking the time off work. That said, there actually is still, despite the fact that some of it can be accounted for by um, unpaid care work, meaning that women can engage less in paid employment, there definitely still is a gender pay gap. I mean, it's hard to know what to say to people who say black is white. <laughs> you know, when like, it isn't. There absolutely is a pay gap. Um, another interesting facet of it, actually, is that hourly pay for people who work part-time is lower than hourly pay for people who work full-time. Now, again, I think if you were a biased actor, you could say, well, that's you've chosen to work part-time, so you get a, a lower wage. But if you're doing the same job, just part-time versus full-time, there's actually a reason, you know, that you should be being paid less. But, you know, people do argue, well, that's because she's in part-time work. So that's not really a, a wage gap. I mean, it is. It is still a pay gap because it's the same job, just different hours. So, you know, I, I think the reason people get so upset about the issue of workplace inequality is that it feels so personal in a way that talking about, you know, car crash test dummies doesn't, right? Because that's so clearly a system issue. When you're talking about workplace, there's people involved and people get very defensive. They think that you're saying you don't deserve your wage um, or you are oppressing me, you know. And again, that's not really what we're talking about. It is still a systems problem. You know, it's a societal level problem of who is expected to do the unpaid care work who is given a pay boost because they've become a dad while she's given a demotion because she's become a mom. You know, th this isn't about individual people. This is still about systems, but I think it's much harder to talk about because people feel it personally. And so I think that that's why you get that massive pushback because people don't want to believe that it's true. They really don't want to believe that it's true. Whereas it doesn't hurt anyone to believe the truth about car crash statistics. And that's a really difficult one to address. I mean, this is always my approach is to try to not talk about people and talk about systems, not just because it is what the problem is, I firmly believe that, but because you don't get anywhere as soon as people start feeling defensive. And so I like to think about, well, what are the systems that we can change to address things like the gender pay gap? And there is actually fairly good um, evidence for what you need to do. The first one is recognizing that unpaid care work exists, which is a very big one and has not happened in most companies or most um, countries for that matter. I'm going to tell you a story. So we're going back in history to 1975 and we're going across the sea to Iceland. And in Iceland, the women went on strike for one day and uh, the reason they went on strike was they were fed up with their contribution to the economy not being taken seriously and not being visible. Because this is another big part of the unpaid care work is that it is this invisible work that no one notices because we don't count it. We don't count it for GDP, therefore it's not valued. It's seen as valueless, even though it has a value. So the women of Iceland were like, we're not having this anymore. It's 1975, everyone was a radical feminist. And... Um, we were born too late. <laughs> and, and so they decided to go on strike. So they did no paid work, but they also did no unpaid work. So the men had to do all the unpaid care work. All the kindergartens were closed because they were mainly run by women. So the men had to take the kids to work and they had to feed the kids. And um, so you had this situation apparently where like kids were interrupting radio shows and, you know, the men were incredibly frazzled. Supposedly, this is another story that I think is a wonderful story. I don't know if it's true, but apparently um, they sold out of sausages, which <laughs> was like the ready meal of the time. And the men were just like, have the sausages. I don't know what to do with you. And by the end of the day, the men, like this, this day, this horrible day came to be known as the Long Friday. The men had such a bad time. Now, does this remind you of anything? Anything like that's happened recently? Like maybe a pandemic where kids were like, yes, interrupting TV shows. <laughs> yeah, right? I was thinking of I was thinking of that one 
It was in the UK, I believe. Yeah. This this expert on TV got interrupted and his kid like rolled in and then the other kid like rolled in. Do you I know what I'm talking it. about? I do. Such a great video. And the girl's <laughs> just like, <laughs> um, and there's another great one that also happened in the UK <laughs> of this, um, this female reporter and, you know, she's at home and she has the kids at home. And <laughs> She's trying to like, I can't remember what she was talking about, something very serious. And her son, who is like basically like a terrorist at this point, is just like, can I have a biscuit? And she's like, yes, you can have a biscuit. Can I have two biscuits? Yes, you can have two biscuits. <laughs> um, and the thing that I thought, you know, it made me think so much of this Iceland um, experience because I said, let me finish the story about Iceland. Basically, like the next year, they passed a Sex Equality Act. And like a few years later, they elected the world's first democratically elected uh, president. There had been a, a female prime minister. This was the first president. And, you know, Iceland is regularly like the top of all the World Economic Forum charts for equality, etc. Why has that happened in Iceland? arguably because they made women's work visible in a way that it hadn't been visible before. Men experienced, oh my God, this is what women do every day. <laughs> this is terrible. Depending on the day you catch me, I can be an optimist. Sometimes I'm a massive pessimist. But when I think about the Iceland story and I think about what happened in COVID, which also made unpaid care work visible to many, many men, and to the media. I mean, I'd never seen as many stories in the mainstream media about feminist economics and unpaid care work. You know, it was just like, what is going on? Like the whole media landscape is changing. We never talk about the economy in this way. And suddenly we really were talking about the economic impact of unpaid care work and how it was affecting the workplace and people's ability to engage in paid work. I mean, it was just like everyone became a feminist economist. And I do think there has been some lasting impact. Who knows how long it will last? You know, corporations, for example, suddenly recognizing unpaid care work is a business issue, you know, starting to offer childcare, um, starting to offer flexible working, you know, all these things that feminists have been demanding for a really long time. And suddenly the pandemic, it was like, oh, right, I see what you're talking about. Yeah, probably because the bosses themselves were at home experiencing the homeschooling, you know, all that kind of thing. That is the kind of thing that needs to happen to fix the gender pay gap. Much more needs to happen. You know, it can't just be business that deals with this. It does have to be the government as well. You know, but like even in the UK, we have, you know, a conservative government, which is traditionally, you know, small state, not into big social interventions. They have recognize this issue of unaffordable childcare and the economic drag that it has on this country in the form of women not being able to engage in paid labor. And so they are trying to do something about it. You know, would that have happened without the pandemic? How can I possibly know? But it's very interesting to me that it happened in the context of a pandemic where invisible labor was suddenly made so, so salient. That was incredible. I learned so much. So we have a little closing tradition. The podcast is called Erica Taught Me, but really today is all about Caroline Taught Me. So what do you want people to be able to walk away saying, Caroline taught me this? Caroline taught me that men are not gender neutral and that I should always sex disaggregate my data. I hope that Caroline taught you that. Do you think Caroline taught you that? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> okay, Thank you so much for this. Thank you very much for having me. It's been great. If you've enjoyed the episode, please take a moment to leave a review. It really helps support what we're doing. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next Tuesday on a brand new episode of Erica Taught Me.